Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Gaffney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to God's glory and that of his kingdom. We're going to visit first today with a man I've come to admire greatly over a very long period of time. He has served our government at high levels, including as a deputy undersecretary of defense for policy. He's also been uh, a senior congressional staff member. He's been a leader in the defense industrial sector. And he is these days, I'm very proud to say, a senior fellow of our Center for Security Policy and a very active contributor to the public policy debate. We're pleased to welcome back Dr. Stephen Bryan. Nice Steve, to be with you. So good to have you with him. Happy to be here. Thank you. A lot to talk with you about. Um, Let's start with China, Steve. You have been warning for some time about what the Chinese are up to. I think all of us have had in the space of the past week or so um, a little bit of a wake-up call, as they say. Give us your thoughts on this balloon business, Um, certainly the first one, which we've now identified as of Chinese origin. And any insights you've got as to what else has been flying around and intercepted <laughs> well, in the recent past? Well, I don't have too many insights because we're not getting any information uh, on the other three so far. There may be more. Um, the, the big one, the one that was shot down over near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And now they've recovered a good part of the electronics and sensors from that, from that balloon. So... They will, they being the Defense Department, uh, will soon know its capabilities. Um, whether we Which will... were not meteorological, presumably. I doubt it. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that uh, this uh, balloon was surveying our missile defenses and our uh, strategic missile, nuclear missile uh, deployments. There are three of them. Uh, trying to... Uh, learn more about them that they can't learn from satellites. Talk a little bit about that, uh, because I think for most of us, uh, we've all been told that, you know, we can read license plates from space. Uh, What kinds of things might they be able to learn from a lower altitude? Well, first of all, you know, I don't know much about Chinese satellites. uh, And probably we don't know much about Chinese satellites either. But I'm suspicious that they're very good. Um. You know, they, they claim a lot of things, but but do they really deliver? I would s- suspect that they don't do very well, um, and they're not providing enough information to the Chinese military uh, who want to learn more about our strategic defense capabilities because they want to neutralize them. I mean, it's simple as that. I mean, and if they can neutralize them, st- even if it's by threat, even if it's by threat, then it becomes very difficult for us to, to deal with the Chinese because locally they have, you know, locally being in the East Pacific, they have dominant power today. So they want to neutralize us. And, and, and so the, and there's some suspicion that they may also be developing a first strike capability. China now has more missiles, strategic missiles, ICBMs, than we do. Well, launchers, at least. I, I think we anticipate they'll the shortly have missiles. You know, the ability, no, missiles, the ones that they can launch. They are more of those than there than we have deployed. We have about 400. Uh, they have more. How many more? I'm not sure, but more. But why do you do that? I mean, what's the purpose here? There was never a kind of standoff with China with nuclear weapons before. So this is new. And, and clearly the balloon fits into that context because the Chinese are trying to learn more and more about what our capabilities have, how do the systems work, how, what are their vulnerabilities, that kind of thing. And I suspect the sensors will be things like SAR radars and multi, uh, multi-spectral uh, imaging to see if they can see what's underground and how this, how this thing functions. Steve, um, with respect to that first strike business, uh, one of the things that the Chinese have added to their arsenal, which we do not have a counterpart for at the moment, um, are these so-called hypersonic missiles. They have been described as uh, <clears throat> potentially first strike weapon systems. Do you, do you see them as such? And would that fit well, into uh, this? 
the real point is you can't Sorry. defend against them. <clears throat> at least at the present time, as far as I know, there is no uh, missile defense system or aircraft or anything else that can intercept them. Uh, so they're a threat. Now, I think there are very early days of deploying such things. But I think they're largely experimental still. But they're, they're coming. In fact, we're developing our own, too. So it's going to change the, the whole landscape of how you defend your national territory and how you secure your your strategic capabilities. And, and I don't think we have all the answers to that by any means. Right. I, I did a commentary today in which I said, you know, for decades now, basically going back to 1972, we haven't done a whole lot to defend our territory, <laughs> but this is this is showing... Uh, the inadequacies of even the relatively small missile defense system that we have deployed. Well, we have a system in the ground-based interceptor, which is in Alaska, really Alaska and Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. There's 44 missiles. So it's easy to saturate, even if it worked perfectly, which it doesn't. Um, and that's it. That's all we got. Yeah. And and as you say, it's not uh, got the response time, the uh, the ability, the speed uh, to uh, deal with these sort of hypersonic. Well, no, no one does. I mean, yeah. that that's true across the board. Yeah, um, Steve. One of the things that um, I was fascinated about, we we do, as you know, you've participated in, in these uh, webinars of our committee on the present danger, China, and uh, about a week or two ago, now we had one in which we were examining this whole balloon story and what was going on, and. Uh, one of the explanations for why the Chinese might be doing this balloon thing as um, not just a complement to their satellites, however capable they are, but as a replacement for them in the event that they might use a balloon or something else to uh, launch an EMP attack, an electromagnetic pulse attack, which could take out their satellites as well as ours, uh, to say nothing of what's underneath on the ground. Yeah, but a balloon would be taken out too. So I don't think Well the balloon would be taken out, but the but the the idea would be to reconstitute balloon sensors uh, faster oh, than Oh as a backup, uh, you mean with yeah, with uh, satellites. So it's just another thought about how seriously they may be about pursuing sort of nuclear war fighting. I, mean, I wonder why uh, the Chinese would be so uh, taking such a risk of sending anything over US airspace in U.S. territory, with apparently not worried about any consequences. And that, that's concerning well, me. I, I agree. But don't you think that might have something to do with how Joe Biden actually responded yeah, well, to it initially? I think it has a lot to do not only with Biden, but with the Pentagon. Um, and, and you have uh, people like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mr. Milley, uh, General Milley, who are friendly to the Chinese and, and who don't want to get into a conflict, you know, let's let sleeping dogs lie. Well, they'll be, you know, the bad boys, but that's okay. And, you know, all that nonsense. But but so much so that he actually, as you know, Steve, said that uh, to his Chinese counterpart that he would call him in the event that we were launching an attack against them. <laughs> that's exactly right. Something that he thought Donald Trump might try to do. Um, this brings me to Taiwan, Steve, and, and we're going to have to take a short break here. I just wanted to say you you put together uh, last year, as I recall, um, a really good sort of assessment of not only the threat that the Chinese Communist Party's military arm, the People's Liberation Army, represents to Taiwan, but also what kinds of things the United States must do in order to counter uh, the threats that the Chinese clearly are posing to that island and perhaps are preparing to exercise. Uh, I want to talk to you about all of that on the other side of a very short break. We'll be right back with Dr. Stephen Bryan, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, one of our country's leaders on national security matters, and a senior fellow of our Center for Security Policy, right after this.
This is Frank Gaffney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Reports that our sovereign airspace is being repeatedly penetrated and that it has evidently been going on unnoticed for some time are profoundly unsettling. Unfortunately, they highlight a serious national vulnerability heretofore unknown to most Americans. That vulnerability arises from the fact that after President Nixon signed the U.S.-Soviet Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty in 1972, America basically gave up on most active and even passive defenses of our country. The theory was that having agreed to forswear effective anti-missile systems, it made little sense to maintain comprehensive air defenses, extensive protection for our leadership, or any real civil defense for our population. Instead, we embraced a notion called Mutual Assured Destruction, or MAD, our perfect vulnerability backed by a nuclear deterrent was said to be the formula for security. MAD is, well, MAD. Clearly, we need to defend America once again. This is Frank Gaffney. Welcome back. Steve Bryan is in the house virtually. We're very pleased to have him always, especially to talk about things that he's been studying and addressing very thoughtfully for quite some time, especially the threat we're facing from the Chinese Communist Party. And Steve, I was just mentioning that um, you pulled together some very senior military, uh, now retired officers, to sort of think through how do we deter an attack by the Chinese against Taiwan? Um, it was published, I'm pleased to say, as a book by our Center for Security Policy Press. Remind um, us of its title, which is escaping me at the moment, and um, the key findings of it. Well, it, it was it was how to you know basically how to defend Taiwan, um, and the team. I think that's the most important thing. We're all uh, generals and admirals who served in the Pacific, in Japan, or in the, the Pacific Command. Uh, and have extensive, and at the very most senior levels, and, and have extensive knowledge of the area and what things we should be doing that we're not doing. Um, and, and I think that that's the key here. Uh, while we've made some little progress in the last six months, uh, we're way behind the eight ball. And frankly, the war in Ukraine now has delayed deliveries of weapons that are needed in, in the Pacific back-ordered uh, almost everything that Taiwan needs. Same is for our Marines in Okinawa, back-ordered again. So we're way behind the eight ball. And if we keep up dumping stuff into Ukraine, we're going to have nothing to give for the defense of Taiwan. And, and, and that's dangerous because then the Chinese will say, hey, this is our chance, you know. You Steve, do you, do you think that that actually was factored into the thinking? I mean, it seems pretty clear that Xi Jinping greenlighted uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, provided it happened after the, well, what I call genocide games, the Olympics in Beijing. Uh, <laughs> right. But, but you know, it was right before that, that they met in Beijing. And yeah. uh, it seems as though having the United States preoccupied with that invasion and countering it, um, using up resources, uh, money not least, uh, would serve the Chinese purposes, would it not? Absolutely. I mean, it's just logical. Uh, the more the U.S. expends munitions and capabilities in Ukraine and devotes its full resources, which is what we're doing, to the Ukrainian war, uh, the less prepared we are in the Pacific. Now, I've, I've had promote people who are very much in favor of the defense of Ukraine in this fashion, say, well, they're different weapons. They're, they're not the same kind of weapons that we would use for the defense of Taiwan. How, how would you respond to that? Well, let's take one example. I think that would help. HIMARS. Uh, HIMARS is a very important system that's being used heavily in Ukraine, so much so that there's no spare missiles for Taiwan or for Okinawa or anywhere else. And it's crucial to help stop a, a, a sea invasion by the Chinese. So lacking that is a very serious problem. Can't supply them to Japan either. They'd like to get some. So so we're we're behind we're behind on that. We're, it, look, it's not a one to one. 
But, you know, even taking howitzer ammunition, which is, of course, very important. And we've seen just how much it takes, you know, to keep the guns firing in Ukraine. Um, that means there's, there's just nothing left for anywhere else. We just took from the Korean stockpile and from the Israeli stockpile, these are our stockpiles, the 155 howitzer shells and sent them to Ukraine. So we really robbed the cradle. And, uh, you know. And, and those South Korean well, I mean, howitzer shells are obviously directly relevant. Happy. Yeah, they've kept quiet, but I think they're not happy. Yeah. Well, no, I'm just saying that, that if you're talking about a possible conflict in the Pacific, Korea is almost certainly going to be a, 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 a theater in which... The, well, I would imagine that if, if war breaks out, and it will include Korea. Yeah, I think so, too. That, yeah. that certainly seems to be the agenda. Again, the Chinese... Well, and you may, may notice that Kim Jong-un now is really uh, jacking up his military capabilities, including his missile capabilities. So that's a good indicator that he's preparing. Um. So, Steve, your assessment at the moment of uh, the adequacy of the Taiwanese defenses. Well, uh, there's two things to keep in mind. And one is we take up very much in the book. And, and that is that you can't do this without a common command system. And we've made no progress on that. None at all. Uh, we need a common command system between ourselves and the Taiwanese as much as we needed with Japan and Korea. Um, and I think that the lack of leadership on that has been pretty appalling. Uh, Let me ask you. The only way you can really take advantage of the assets you have is to make them work together. It's not an accident, is it, that we have a lack of leadership on this? Um, I mean, we sort of touched on that a moment ago, but uh, is there any doubt in your mind that the behavior that we've seen exhibited by Joe Biden personally and by his administration more generally when it comes to China. Uh, in fact, I, I heard Tony Blinken again talking about the competition with uh, China. Yeah. Um, this isn't about competition, and yet it's being touted as such uh, rather than, you know, a mortal enemy threatening us uh, directly, I think, with war of the shooting kind, not the unrestricted kind. Um, is is that part of, uh, well, the compromise, uh, some call it, I would call it betrayal of Joe Biden to the Chinese? Well, I, you know, as, as you know, Frank, I stay out of the politics part and try to deal with the military and strategic part. But from a purely military point of view, we're not doing what we should be doing. And... And that, that, I don't think of it as that, politics that, that that that's that's not being done. I think that's strategic and well. I mean, and, I'm not uh, happy and a military with, threat yeah. with the lack of with, with the lack of seriousness. Let's start there. The lack of seriousness in understanding that we're reaching we're reaching a point of really a dangerous threat to Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, and to all of our interests in the Pacific, and it could be tremendously destabilizing. For, the, for them and for the United States. Steve, let me ask you something. Uh, we've had a number of conversations on this program about it over the past year or so, I guess. The extent to which the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Taiwanese, maybe the Philippines, Vietnam, are not likely to be the only targets of Chinese military action uh, that we ourselves Maybe. Oh yeah, I mean, I our think assets, Chinese, our personnel, or maybe even our territory. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think the Chinese will want to knock off our bases because if there's a big fight, I mean, it's and they think we're going to come in, they're going to preempt. So I think Okinawa's first on their list. Japan is second on their list. Uh, Guam, Hawaii. That's pretty far. Guam would be more likely. Guam's in their in their range. Yeah. Well, I think I think you can find targets or, or capabilities that would make Hawaii. By the way, you know these these balloons we were talking about the balloons. Uh, they're taking a look not only at Alaska and California, which are clearly on the Chinese agenda, but also Hawaii to, and Guam. Um, Steve, uh, we talked a little bit about Ukraine. Uh, we're going to have to take a short break here in just a moment. Um, I, this is a topic that uh, has. I think it's fair to say, um, 
consumed a lot of energy uh, and divided uh, a lot of Americans. I, yes, I think it's sure. fair to say we all have great sympathies for the Ukrainian people who've been subjected to this horror at the hands of the murderous uh, Vladimir Putin and his forces. Uh, and yet there is this question as to um, what are the prospects here of them even sort of uh, freezing in place what the Russians have done so far, let alone rolling it back to say nothing of freeing Crimea, all of which seems to be um, in the wish list of uh, the Ukrainian government. How could they do that? Um, are we providing anything remotely like the kit that they would need? And if not, could we? And is it advisable? So I want to walk through with you all of those thoughts. Pretty good right question. With more. <laughs> we'll be right back with more to answer them. Thank you. Stay tuned for Steve Bryan on the other side, right after this. and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa, provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. Welcome back. I'm very pleased to say we have an additional segment with the great Steve Bryan. We are talking with him about what is now afoot in Ukraine, our interests there, uh, whether we can do something to assist that uh, is not further jeopardizing our interests elsewhere in the world and our ability to meet our responsibilities there. Um, in short, what's going on with Ukraine and where do we go from here? Uh, Dr. Bryan, what are your thoughts? Well, you know that right now, Frank, there's a forming up a big Russian offensive in eastern eastern Ukraine. At least that's what we think it's going to be, uh, and a big push. Whether the Russians can be successful, I don't know yet, because uh, while they've got a lot of manpower and a lot of equipment, the, the level of tactics on their side has been fairly conventional and easy to understand, and the Ukrainians have learned how to exploit it. So, so there's still a, an issue about whether or not uh, uh, the Russians will be successful or won't be successful. But my main concern in this is that, you know, the premise that, that the U.S. involvement is based on has been trying to put NATO into Ukraine. And to my way of thinking, that's not logical. There was no reason to have NATO in Ukraine. Uh, it, it's a flashpoint. It's a difficult area. So while it's advertised as a democracy, it's far from that. Um, but more importantly, strategically speaking, there was no need. Um, so we've been chasing, you know, the, the war, and, and there's responsibility on both sides. I, I don't think it's one side. Um, but do but you think that actually was the impetus for what Putin has done here, or is that simply? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's made it clear from the beginning, before the war, you know, he didn't want, the red line was NATO in in Ukraine. No, um, no, I understand that. But I think he has made maybe a little less clear, but it seems pretty well established that his ambition is actually to reconstitute as much of the old 
at least Russian. Maybe his ambition, but I mean, it's one thing to have ambitions; it's another thing to realize them. Um, no, no, I understand. And and I, but I that, think, that that that's the motivation, really, not just uh, this possibility of Ukraine going into NATO. Well, that's part of the complication of this whole thing. Uh, but to my way of thinking, there should be a way out. There should be a political solution, uh, if possible. And and I think the real problem we have right now is that the United States is utterly opposed to any political solution, which means continuous war at the least. I don't think the Russians are going to cut and run. I don't think the Ukrainians are going to cut and run. So if you have this terrible stalemate that burns up lives and destroys the territory, I don't see where that's beneficial to anybody. Mm-hmm. So is, is, I, the, I is the factor that you didn't mention, but that the Ukrainians don't seem to be willing to uh, effect a political solution, at least at this at this stage. Well, the history's mixed. I mean, the, the, the Naftali Bennett, the former Israeli prime minister, uh, was a mediator, attempted to be a mediator between the Russians and the Ukrainians, and had made some considerable progress. And then, and Zelensky was willing. And then all of a sudden, it, he wasn't willing because Washington wasn't willing. So it's not clear how, you know, it's, you, you have to be careful here. How independently Zelensky, uh, how independent Zelensky is, or how much Washington is telling him this is acceptable, this is not acceptable. You can do this, you can't do that. I mean, he's in a trap. Let's face it. It's, I, I don't envy his position, not at all. Uh, he's fairly heroic, but but it's very difficult. It is very difficult, and and as is uh, how we extricate ourselves from this as well. Uh, it brings me back, though, Steve, to that question that I put to you a moment ago, and that is, do we, in fact, have a Putin who really has as his uh, his set agenda, um, you know, taking all of Ukraine? Uh, and if so, then whatever, you know, sort of ceasefire might be affected or uh, even some sort of uh, agreement is is simply just... You know, the first bites that will be followed by different. gobbling I, I the rest. I think that, uh, well, he obviously wants to consolidate Donetsk and Luhansk. And that's what the fighting we're seeing, that particularly Bakhmut, is all about. Um, and the other thing I think he wants, if I understand correctly, that maybe he's not going to get, is a friendly, a pro-Russian government in Ukraine. Um, but I don't think he'll get that. Uh, I think what he might get, what he might get is a political solution with a semi-autonomous Eastern Ukraine, which is what the Kiev, uh, the Minsk Accords had promised, uh, and uh, uh, no NATO in Ukraine. Those are things that I think would square the deal, so to speak. That doesn't solve the Crimea issue, but it solves the other issues. But it would involve the withdrawal of the Russians from those Eastern areas? I think so. Maybe not right away, but there would have to be a timetable. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. We'll be watching this closely, Steve. Let let me go back to something we touched on earlier that you've got a lot of expertise in, and that is um, the defense industrial base. Uh, There's a lot of talk these days, um, including on the right, about uh, the military industrial complex and, you know, what a problem it is and how it's greedily making money off of uh, Ukraine and um, generally to be regarded with uh, deep suspicion, if not worse. First of all, talk about the importance of the defense industrial base, uh, its condition, if you will, and whether that's uh, an appropriate way to think about it. Well, it's a peacetime defense industrial base. So it's not a wartime defense industrial base. And it's not even a preparatory wartime defense industrial base. It's just a peacetime industrial base. So it lives off of contracts. When the government gives a contract, they build something. Then if they don't get another contract, they close up the factory and wait for the next contract, which makes it very expensive, by the way. Um, But uh, because you have to reconstitute every time you want to make another number of weapons, take the the Stinger missile, you know, they stopped making them. So now they have to start all over again. So that's very expensive. Um, But, you know, we're just not geared up for what we like World War II, where we converted our industries over to wartime capabilities. And we're not even near that. I mean, uh, we're just we're just giving contracts to the Lockheeds and the General Dynamics and all the others to build things. 
but it takes two or three years, sometimes longer to get the job done, even with existing weapons already designed. And for a new weapon, you know, you're talking decade or more than a decade. So it's not, which is, a, which is not very helpful. Mind boggling, really. Um, but Steve, also there's the problem of some dependency, as I understand it, on the part of that industrial base on supply chains, incredibly, uh, in some cases, it seems from China as well. Um, is that contributing to the difficulty in cranking out uh, the replacements for well, weapons that two, we've been deploying? Two problems. I mean, one is that a lot of the components that these weapons use were designed 20 years ago. And so they don't make them anymore. Uh, my friend Bob Noyce, who was the founder of one of the co-founder of Intel, uh, called them sunset technologies. And I said, what do you do? You know, I asked him back in the 80s to go look at the Minuteman sites and tell us how we could fix them because we couldn't get spare parts. And we were thinking about setting up foundries to make old fashioned parts. So that's a big problem. And then, you, you know, you, the defense industry lives off the civilian uh, base, you know, what the microelectronics and the sensor people and all the other different companies can produce to feed into the defense manufacturing. And the problem, the problem there is that most of that stuff's been a mess in the last few years because of, of the supply chain issues that we all know about. So they're, they're stuck there. Uh, they didn't pre-order and make stockpiles of this because they never were given money to do that. So it's a it's a it's a real problem. And if you take a jet fighter, a jet fighter is going to stay in service fifty or sixty years from the time it's designed to the time it's retired. That's a long time. And even with modifications, it's a long, long time. And and a lot of the parts in it are, are just obsolete, simply obsolete. So we haven't solved that problem. And Steve, I guess I would ask you to contrast the condition of our defense industrial base. I'm thinking particularly of things like shipbuilding with that of the Chinese Communist Party at the moment. Have you looked carefully well, at this? Totally different picture because we have only a few shipyards left that will produce military equipment. Um, and many of them have gone out of business or they're just, they just can't do any more than what they're doing. The Chinese are, are a totally different picture. They have very modern, new uh, uh, industries that are cranking out defense products at a very high rate, and, and including the uh, highly subsidized naval vessels. Yeah, naval vessels, missiles, going down the list. I think it was Gordon Chang who said on our show uh, recently, Steve, that you could put all seven of our shipyards into the footprint of one, one of, the, one of, of the, the Chinese, let yeah. alone the other nine or so. Yeah, well, we, you know, it, it, it's always been difficult. A lot of them, smaller ones, have gone out of business in the United States. Um, and it's, uh, and, and we're not building much in the way of, uh, I mean, aside from one Arleigh Burke uh, destroyer, which is probably going to be built, and at least it's supposed to be funded by Congress, the main ships we're not building. You know, we're building a few submarines, but very few. And we're, you know, we have one new aircraft carrier. Yeah. And Steve, I guess the question, and we have to wrap with this uh, 30 seconds, if you would, does this asymmetry reinforce in your expectation, Chinese belief that they can take us on? Yeah, sure. I think there's no doubt about it. I think the Chinese are watching us very carefully. They're trying to figure out where we're going. They have a term they call comprehensive national power, and I think they measure it in ways that suggest they have a lot more of it than we do. Steve Bryan, thank you for your time today, my friend. It's good to see you always and to catch up, even if uh, oftentimes um, the news is not good. But we appreciate well, your pleasure to be to with us you, truthfully, and we'll look forward to a visit with you again soon. We'll be right back with more from a friend in Canada about what's going on there with balloons, among other things. Christine Douglas-Williams, right after this.
Thanks for tuning in to Securing America with me, Frank Gaffney. If you find the contents of this program to be informative and valuable, I'd like to ask you to consider playing a part in supporting the organization that makes Securing America possible, our Center for Security Policy. We call the center the home of the special forces in the war of ideas. We feature such warriors daily on Securing America as they diagnose the dangers facing our nation, develop strategies for thwarting them, and work with other veteran national security practitioners, legislators, and the American people to execute those strategies. Thanks to our friends at Salem Media, we're able to expand greatly awareness of the Center for Security Policy's efforts and their impact. Like the real special forces, our effectiveness depends on having the ammunition, in our case, money, to perform our mission. Please, consider making a tax-deductible contribution at securefreedom.org. Thanks. Welcome back, and a special welcome to our next guest. Her name is Christine Douglas-Williams. She is an intrepid and highly accomplished and, well, highly recognized producer of television films and other media products, uh, host as well as a producer uh, behind the camera. She is also an author, uh, including a terrific book, The Challenge of Modernizing Islam which we will be talking about momentarily, and indeed a very, very uh, productive contributor to one of our favorite online resources, jihadwatch.com. It is a dot, .org, sorry, jihadwatch.org, um, Robert Spencer's terrific platform. Uh, Christine, it's so good to have you back with us. Welcome once again from the Arctic north of our border, Canada. Always a pleasure, Frank. Thank you. I wanted to start by asking you, if I could, about um, this recent episode in which Canada was also treated to uh, some sort of overflight. Um, at least according to the Pentagon, we're not able to tell exactly by what. It was, however, with the permission of Justin Trudeau, your prime minister, um, shot down on orders from President Biden. What are Canadians making of all of this, uh, both that most immediate episode, but also what's been happening to us? Frank, there tends to be a bit of I, a bit of worry. I mean, anxiety. And it's uh, and I think that is across the, the entire continent, if not the world, the way trends have been going these days, because nobody can identify or seemingly so identify what it is. Now, the interesting part from my perspective is that when the when these objects were shot down, um, there was a promise to investigate exactly what they are. And I can't see any stalling on that. So there is this question, well, what is it? What is everybody keeping from us? In terms of Justin Trudeau, who immediately came out and said, I ordered the strike down of it. I mean, NORAD is a, an entire organization that covers North America. So I don't think it came, it came down to exactly him ordering it. However, of course, he had to cooperate because it was over Canadian territory. So I don't see it as anything um, to be praiseworthy that Justin Trudeau gave the permission to shoot it down. I, and America already realized this is a threat and it had to be shot down because nobody knew what this was. And that is the, the frightening part of it. Nobody knows what it is. So there's that big question mark like in everybody's mind. Well, I'm sure it is some comfort that the NORAD commanding general said it could be an extraterrestrial. <laughs> that's, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. A whole other conversation. Yeah. Um, Christine, let me turn quickly to um, a topic that you've been addressing recently. Um, we had the Federal Bureau of Investigations in this country recently put out um, something that essentially identified uh, what I believe were called radical traditional Catholics as yet another of the uh, domestic extremist and terrorist organizations that it had to be concerned with. Um, 
you pointed out in a piece, I believe, at jihadwatch.org, that um, this sounds an awful lot like smears that have been circulated by uh, one of our least favorite outfits, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, tell us a little bit about your research, what you've come up with, and its import. Frank, this ties into the whole notion of what we see today, this rise of um, attack on white nationalists um, that they call extremists. And in fact, that does not exclude Christians because Christianity is the backbone, I would go so far as to say, of, of the American Constitution as well as Canada. So the, the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, came out and decided to smear traditional Catholics. Note, they say traditional. They don't talk about Catholics overall because there is an, a, a sort of a, you could call it a woke penetration into the church. But they want to attack traditional Christianity overall, and they're attacking the Catholic Church because it is a powerful organization. And what's creepy about this is that the FBI was willing to go along with it. Nobody knows, given reports so far, what it was that led the FBI to say, okay, we're not going to go ahead with this. They eventually scrapped it, but they were quite willing to go along with the Southern Poverty Law Center and, and, and call traditional Catholicism extreme and, and a national security threat, I think they probably assessed the outcry this would have caused and decided to go back. But it does show you how far they're willing to go when it comes to religious freedoms in America and in Canada, for that matter. Well, I, I think actually there was a fair amount of outcry and they began responding to it and preempted it by shutting this operation down out of uh, Richmond, Virginia, as I recall. Um, but, it, you know, you've raised a couple of key points here, Christine, and, and you've done wonderful work on um, actual threats to our internal security, uh, notably from what I call Sharia supremacists. And after a short break, we're going to talk a bit more about that at the moment. But just on this topic, um, what you've put your finger on really is is not just the outrageousness of this slander this defaming of people of faith. Uh, but two things. One, as you say, uh, they're coming for Christians more generally, I believe. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence of that, not necessarily just the FBI, but sort of the, uh, the left and uh, those under their sway. But also the degree to which the FBI has seemingly really lost its moorings. Um, it has become an agent of, uh, well, you know, a kind of Praetorian guard for Joe Biden and his family. It, it is not doing the job that it is supposed to be doing on counterintelligence. It's supposed to be our premier agency for that. And then on top of it, of course, there's all this, um, well, I could only call it witch hunting uh, with respect to people who happen to be patriots, conservatives, you know, gun owners, veterans, conservatives of various stripes, constitutionalists, who the FBI has decided, uh, along with, of course, Team Biden, the uh, are, the, are the real enemies of our country. And it's, uh, it's numbingly um, crazy and, and infuriating, I have to say. We have to pause for just a second, Christine. When we come back, I want to ask you, um, maybe touch on that point quickly, but to, to help focus on the threats that we are facing, really, no kidding, in Canada as well as in our country, from those who seek to wage jihad against us, um, the subject of your terrific book, The Challenge of Modernizing Islam. We'll be right back with more with Christine Douglas-Williams right after this. Stay tuned, please.
Welcome back. Christine Douglas-Williams is still with us, I'm very pleased to say. She hails from Canada, but she has a reach that extends well into our country, not least in her role as one of the contributing editors to David Horowitz Freedom Center's jihadwatch.org, a wonderful project uh, led by our friend Robert Spencer. Christine, um, any thoughts on that issue of uh, the FBI losing its moorings and looking in the wrong places for real enemies? There's, there's a pattern, Frank, and it, it's a nefarious activism that we see across the board. We see it in every realm. Journalists, they no longer report the actual news, the who, what, when, where, why, and a little bit of the how. They, they put in an opinion in every single story. So we've lost real journalism. It's become state journalism. And we're looking at the FBI. That's also become a state institution. We see this woke, this globalist ideology that is now governing um, most of the West, especially concerning with America and Canada, the whole continent. And the FBI is reflecting that. And But I do believe, I was listening to a video recently, and it was um, the individual said on it that there are still good people in government. So we could only hope that these good people will eventually win this horrendous war from within that we see escalating. Quite a number of them are coming up as whistleblowers um, to help showed light on what is being done inside their agencies. That's an important first step, it seems to me. But Christine, let's talk a little bit further. You, you had a piece about um, the Islamic State now um, once again declaring uh, its intent to wage jihad against Europe, I guess, as well as our own country. Um, this calls to mind, among other things, uh, a persistent concern of mine, which is that uh, in addition to untold millions who have come across our border to the south illegally, and I guess to some extent from the north too, but also um, the 70 to 100,000 or so, mostly, as is true of the others, military age and unaccompanied men that we imported from Afghanistan without having any idea who they are, but considerable reason to believe they probably are Taliban or other jihadists. Uh, give us a sense of, of how you see the potential here for really a, a new and very violent uh, manifestation of uh, the call to jihad that you've been worried about for some time in both countries. Frank, I'm going to tie in a, a few important themes here. First of all, I'm very disturbed that the war that we see happening with Russia and Ukraine is extremely important, but it does not mean that the, the fight against jihad is any less. It's building, and we're not taking note. That threat that you're talking about with ISIS, ISIS issued a threat to particularly attack Christians, especially in Europe. And the reason for that had to do with the Quran burnings, burning that we had, we saw happen in, in Sweden. This is extremely disturbing because we're seeing a pattern here where the West is willing to be subjugated, I would say, under Islamic supremacists. You have Norway that banned a Quran burning. You have Sweden that was actually kept out of NATO because of it. You've got ISIS now threatening people internationally. And you have talk again and again about people saying, stop offending Islam because it's causing violence. So we're blaming the perpetrator, not the victims here. And we are not standing up for our constitutions. And over here in Canada, we, were, we recently had a, an Islamophobia czar appointed, um, Amira Al-Gawabi. She, in fact, actually works for the Canadian Race Relations Foundation as a director, where I was thrown out of for talking about Islamic supremacism and political Islam. Right. The so it's book you did for us at the Center for Security Policy. That's Press. right. Yeah. That's right. And Quebec. So we have a Tsarina, I guess what you might call her, uh, for uh, countering Islamophobia. The European Union has just appointed one, and I'll be very surprised if we don't get one out of the Muslim Brotherhood penetrated Biden administration as well. Uh, what is the reason to be concerned about that? Um, Islamophobia is supposedly this widespread phenomenon that, uh, well, I guess people like you and I have been charged with uh, engaging in. Uh, is there any truth to this as a an actual medical condition, of a phobia about Islam? And what is it being done in, in pursuing this agenda? 
first of all, there's no medical condition at all when it comes to any phobia against Islam. And you and I, I would say, Frank, um, we will not be people that will be hateful toward Muslims as people. That is just not the way we are. There's no phobia there. However, we do call out the problems that we see with Islam. We see it in Islamic countries that are governed by the Sharia, the abuses. So bringing that kind of thinking of blasphemy that has these, these tenets under it of blasphemy that we can't criticize um, a religion that is causing human pain, that is dangerous, Frank. And pain, the, and, the pain and loss of life and, you know, yes. death and destruction on a massive scale. And, and let me just make a fine point on this, if I can, Christine. A phobia is defined as an unreasoned fear. Um, and in fact, the whole point of jihad is to instill quite understandable fear and, and, uh, and you know, submission on the part of others. So uh, to the extent that we're hearing these uh, folks being entrusted with responsibility to go after those who are accused mostly by, I think, the Muslim Brotherhood and Sharia supremacists like them of having unreasoned fear of Islam. Uh, where does that lead, Christine, do you think? It leads to total takeovers of the West. The West is now afraid. People mm. will not go out, not most people, and insult Islam. Morally speaking... Not, not insult you, Islam, but speak even, even truthfully, even Muhammad, even critically Muhammad. of it to yeah. say things. There are certain things I wouldn't say, and, and that's my choice. But if somebody else wants to say it and they want to be insulting, they have a right under our constitutions. And that is very key. We may not cho choose it, but you cannot legislate morality. It is legislated in Sharia states. So to see that come to America and to Canada is very frightening. We cannot highlight the dangerous aspects of the ideology within Sharia. And this is very important for people to understand. If we're not aware of the nature of the threat, how do we, we fight will it? will be incapable of fighting it. It's that simple. Christine Douglas Williams, thank you for the fighting that you do against all of this. Um, the truth telling, um, not phobic, but reasoned and thoughtful Amazing. and informed, uh, notably at um, jihadwatch.org. I know you keep up the good work and look forward to having you back with us again soon. Always a pleasure. Look forward to talking to the rest of you again next time on Securing America. I hope as a result of this program, you feel better equipped to help us protect the country we love and that you will now before it can multiply.